Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome to the RSA. So my name is Julian Astle and I'm the RSA's Education Director and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here today. A little bit of housekeeping before I introduce our three distinguished panellists. So the first point to make is please do turn your phones to silent so we don't get interrupted. Um, Secondly, to let you know that we're filming today and live streaming over the web, so a warm welcome also to anybody who's watching online. And finally, for those of you who like to tweet, the hashtag is there at RSA Ideal School. Um, Now, before I start, I'm just going to introduce our three guests. Um, Starting closest to me is Peter Hyman, who is the co-founder and executive head teacher at School 21 in Stratford. We then have Daisy Christodoulou, who is the director of education at No More Marking, formerly head of assessment at art schools and before that a teacher, I believe. And um, finally, David Laws, um, my old colleague from the Liberal Democrats, um, who is now the executive director of the Education Policy Institute. So what I'm going to do just briefly before we start the conversation, is just talk you through some of the key issues at the heart of the report that I've written that we're launching today, the Ideal School Exhibition. And the focus of this paper is on how we can rediscover the true purposes, um, the real substance of education, and look beyond what I'm calling the education by numbers game. to understand where I'm coming from, where the RSA are coming from, it's, it's important to understand you know, this is an enlightenment organisation. Our stated mission as RSA is to build a 21st century enlightenment. And so when we look at education and we analyse its strengths and its weaknesses, it's through that frame that, that we do so. So the questions that we ask, for example, are, you know, is the, is the system equipping children and young people with the knowledge and the reasoning skills they need to play a full and active part in the political and intellectual, cultural life of the nation to to enter into what the English philosopher Michael Oakeshott calls the great conversation of mankind. We want to build a wider culture which values learning for its own sake and which places a premium on open inquiry and free speech, reason and evidence. And yet most of the time in England, the conversation isn't about any of that. The conversation is a more narrow and instrumentalist discussion, which is shaped by both the logic and the language of tests and targets, inspection judgments and league tables, the, the logic and language, in other words, of the assessment and the accountability system in particular. And that's obscures, as I was saying at the outset, the real substance of education, which is to be found in the relationship between the teacher, the student, and the text, text in the broadest sense. So what I've done is I've gone out and I've searched for some schools, one of which is School 21 that that Peter set up and runs, which are all united by one thing, which is that they look beyond the demands of the administrative accountability system and are shaped instead by their own values, their own vision, their own sense of mission. I call these mission-oriented schools. So just going to talk you through the sort of framing of the debate in the paper. So I've got this two-by-two quadrant of gamers and missionaries. Now, a word about language. Gaming, very pejorative rather inflammatory word, and it doesn't capture the full range of behaviours that I describe. It captures only the most serious. So, for instance, outright cheating is not something that can be excused. Manipulating admissions and exclusions in order to boost your... Equally cynical, inexcusable. Sorry. um, And most schools are neither gamers nor missionaries, or at least not extreme versions of either. They're clustered somewhere in the middle. Okay? But the schools that I write about in this book are those ones in the red circle. Okay? These are highly effective um, missionary schools which have a very, very clear sense of their own purpose and their own identity. Now, the red line on the left, this is all, there's no science behind this, by the way. This is, this is just to give you an impression. But the, sc- the schools on the left... Um, 
of that red line. They are the ones who are doing the things which, as I say, cannot be excused. Every school on the right of that red line, though, are not really gamers, as you might think of it. What they are doing, actually, and this is probably a more accurate way of describing it, is they are responding rationally to the perverse incentives within the system. That's all they're doing. And the reason they're doing so, of course, is because the stakes of that system, the consequences of failing to meet the government's performance targets are so high, with head teachers fearing for their jobs, sponsors and governors fearing for their schools, reputations on the line, that, quite, that many of them see no other way around it. So what does is, what is the education numbers game involve? This is how it manifests itself. At the, sort of in ascending order of prevalence, I don't know why this keeps moving around. In ascending order of prevalence and descending order of seriousness. So we've got cheating and overmarking of exams. We've got the manipulation of admissions and exclusions. And then again, and then from the third one downwards, we're talking about things that are not particularly serious crimes or misdemeanors at all. They're, they're, they're a response to the, the incentives and system. And some of them, like teaching to the test at the bottom, are so subtle and so commonplace that in fact many of the people who are doing them don't even know they're doing them. And in fact, they're mistaken quite often for good practice. Um, so a lot of these things are just decisions that seem sensible in circumstances. You know, entering your pupils for the easiest to pass qualifications, um, entering them early and repeatedly if need be, um, narrowing the focus of the school at the end of key stage two and, and foreshortening key stage three to give you the best possible run-in to exams. And teaching to the test, which of course is Seems a sensible thing to do, and you could sometimes hear the argument, well, what's the problem so long as you've got a good test? But as Daisy, I'm sure, will explain, this also subverts the real purposes of education because it, 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 it coaches children not... It, it doesn't give them the knowledge that they're supposed to have. So if you're teaching history, it's not about history. It's about how to pass a history exam, and it is tailored very specifically to the precise requirements of the exam and the mark scheme. Now, here's the difference. On the left, we've got schools that are sucked into the, the education by numbers game. Okay? Now, they, the starting point really matters. If you start by focusing on education's proxy goals, and on, particularly on accountability measures, everything else flows from that. Okay? You will be tempted to put the interests of the school for the interests of the student, to game, to teach to the test, to focus only on measured outcomes. That will narrow your curriculum. It will hollow out your, 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 your pedagogy, your, te your teaching methods, which can lead to shallow, temporary, or entirely illusory learning, with a very serious risk, of course, that that leads to widespread disengagement from learning for students. But if you are a missionary, a mission-oriented school, and you start by focusing on education's primary goals, well, then you're putting the interests of your students before those of your school. You're focusing on the substance, on the curriculum and the child. You're focusing on measured and unmeasured outcomes that you may think are important. Character, child well-being, whatever it may be. Um, you're delivering a broad and rich education. And Peter's motto at School 21 is an education of the head, heart and hand. Well, the accountability system, the assessment system only speaks to the head. It doesn't speak to the heart and the hand. And hopefully this leads to deeper learning and also to an emphasis on personal growth and leads, I hope, this is what really we want, which is inquisitive thinkers with a love of learning who cherish independent thought. So, how to call time on this game. Um, there are a range of policy proposals and also some changes to practice, which I suggest in the, in the paper, but the aims of those are as follows. To get teachers to teach to the curriculum not to the test. To get examiners to reward genuine quality rather than coached responses. To get Ofsted to look at how as well as whether a school has met its performance targets. So in other words, to get Ofsted to referee the game up to a point. To get government and Ofsted out of the business of defining excellence and focus solely on identifying failure. A, an analogy I've heard is the difference between the food standards inspectorate and a restaurant critic. We don't want Ofsted playing the role of restaurant critic. To ensure that policymakers and regulators are more supportive and less punitive. It isn't so much the measures and the targets that are distorting professional priorities and practice. It's the, it's the threat of sanction and intervention that sits behind that. 
schools need more support, and in a very decentralized, atomized system, we need to think about how, how to do that. And finally, the real objective that sits behind all of these is to help teachers to reclaim ownership of their institutions, their profession, and their practice using research and evidence to drive their own standards as they innovate and collaborate in pursuit of excellence. So thank you very much. We're now going to get some responses to that, and we're going to start, please, with them. Um, no, we'll, as you like. I mean, no, no, but let, let's do it from the seats now. Yes. Peter. Good. Um, well, thanks a lot, and thanks for inviting me. I think it's a really important uh, report, this, because I think there's a growing movement out there of people who want to do things differently, uh, because um, we can't go on in the sense as we are. All of the things Julian outlined really eloquently and in the report are a system now that is at sort of breaking point in terms of the gap between what the world requires us to prepare young people for and what's actually happening. Um, and to, to sort of start, and there's a, a good chapter in the report about this, the world of this complex and layered and often frightening world that we're, we're all part of and young people are trying to make sense of is, is sort of daily um, a challenge for them. I was sitting in the GCSE drama pieces that they devised themselves last night at, at my school. And they're wrestling with the, you know, what's it like to be a Muslim girl growing up in East London? What's it like to have all the peer pressure of social media? What's it like to deal with loneliness? You know, they have got pressures on them and a, and a complexity in their lives and real heartache about their own identity. Um, that is um, something that we've got to get to grips with. On top of that are the more of the bigger. Uh, issues that they're going to go into the world and have to make sense of, whether it's the effects of globalization or terrorism or artificial intelligence or genetics. And as soon, and Julian does this incredibly eloquently, as soon as you start painting the picture that we're all sort of familiar with, but he does it very well, of this world, you realize that this increasingly emaciated <coughs> and desiccated view of education in order to meet the overly prescriptive and narrow accountability measures is completely missing the mark. And I think it's part of the same um, problem that we're seeing in the, you know, uh, there is a direct line and chain of thought, people may say this is a bit crude, between the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and all those things that people are agonising about, which is all about simple solutions. So the simplicity of what's being asked for from schools, the sort of narrowness of it, is not meeting what is a complex a complex world. Um, everything is black and white. There are a lot of people, including in government, saying, look, it's all about just making the exams harder and then drilling people to get those exams. There are people who believe that it's all about just having a narrow, what they call, core knowledge curriculum. Get rid of everything else. It's all flummery. You don't need technology in schools. You don't need to do skills. All of this is faddy nonsense. It's just about core knowledge. Now, of course, you need knowledge but you need something more expansive. There are others who say, well, let's run a boot camp. The behavior of inner city children is, is, is appalling. They need to be civilized. So we'll run really tough regimented schools. So just as people in, and some politicians at the moment are getting, uh, asking the population to reach for overly simplified um, solutions, I think we're doing that in our education system. We're reducing it to something that does not meet what is necessary uh, for the scale of challenge and, and, and for the depth of what young people are going to have to face uh, when they go out into the world. So what is the, what, what is, what is the answer to that? I think for, briefly for, for us and for a lot of schools, I think it's starting in a different place in terms of what we expect of staff and the culture of staff and what we expect of pupils. For staff, the effect of everything Julian says is you've got a very top-down culture where the pressure on the head teacher is then felt by the senior leader who's then felt by the head of department and it goes down and down until the teacher themselves is just a cog in the exam wheel. So the deprofessionalizing of teaching is now sort of growing at a pace. And at our school, we've tried to sort of reprofessionalize things. We've tried to get teaching back as the layered, complex, extraordinary um, uh, profession that it should be, uh, and, and intellectual uh, profession that it is. And if you give more time and space for that culture to develop, 
then you've got a teaching community that is really wrestling with ideas and with evidence and is empowered to do extraordinary things in the classroom. So we've got to get a new relationship with what we expect from teachers. We've also got to get a new relationship with what we expect from pupils. The subliminal message of too many schools based on all of this is that school is a sort of grinding necessity and one day will be useful when you get your bit of paper and you go out in the world, but it's pretty joyless on the way there. And for me, that's the most depressing view of education. So we started with a slogan at our school, Today Matters. And it's this belief, it sounds like a it's profound belief, that here and now today, whether you're a four-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, you can create work of value beyond the clock. You can make a difference to the world. And our students and pupils are showing in many ways that they can do that. So we're st we start in a different place on staff and a different place on, on pupils. And then, as Julian's alluded to, we then talk about head, heart and hand, which is a way of saying we've got to rebalance the curriculum and what we're doing so that they've got to learn the academics and the foundations of that uh, and the knowledge behind that and the depth of thinking. But they've also got to grow and develop themselves, the, the heart bit, as, uh, as individuals. They develop their character in many ways, which we try and do in a sophisticated way. And then the hand is both literally making stuff, but is also a metaphor for um, problem solving, you know, working in teams, grappling with things in a, in a really interesting way. So we need a more balanced education, a more expansive education that has then some chances of meeting the scale of what young people are going to face and the complexity uh, when, they, when they leave school. Thank you so much. The, um, it's a, it's a, an interesting thing that the schools I talk about in my paper, which Peter's is one, are actually all very different from each other. So, so what this isn't is an argument for a particular model. What it is is an argument for schools being allowed to decide what the model should be, what the vision is, and for it to be rooted in their values, it, based on a simple insight, which is that real excellence and real qualities can't be imposed from outside through regulation. You know, government can mandate adequacy, as the phrase has it, but it can't really create excellence. Um, now, at the, at the heart of this problem is tests and, and assessment, um, because, of course, it is test results that we use in order not just to sort students um, and, and to compare their performance, but schools and to hold schools to account. Um, so to... to Give us her expert view on assessment, its uses, its misuses, how it can both support and impede deep learning, real learning. Daisy Christodoulou. Thanks, Julian. So um, what I really like about this report and about the discussion so far is this focus on the wider mission and the wider goals of schooling. Um, and certainly, uh, when I became a teacher, I was an English teacher. Uh, a quotation that really inspired me, I'm just going to read it out, it's from Robert Trussell, the ragged trousered philanthropists. Um, he says, he says this in it, uh, what we call civilization, the accumulation of knowledge which has come down to us from our forefathers, is the fruit of thousands of years of human thought and toil. It is not the result of the labour of the ancestors of any separate class of people who exist today, and therefore it is by right the common heritage of all. Every little child that is born into the world, no matter whether he is clever or dull, whether he is physically perfect or lame or blind, no matter how much he may sell off or short of his fellows in other respects, in one thing at least he is their equal. He is one of the heirs of all the ages that have gone before. And I, I love that. I loved that then, and I, I still love it now, because I think it says something about what public education should be, about the fact that humans have an entitlement, I think, to, as, as he says there, the common heritage uh, of, 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 of civilization, if you like. Um, and that was certainly, as I say, one of the things that motivated me to become a teacher. Uh, I taught literature. I did a literature degree, and I taught English. Um, so you might think now, why go into assessment? <laughs> Isn't that exactly the kind of dry and desiccated thing that is so inimical to many of the aims that we've all been talking about and these bigger missions? Uh, and certainly there are days when I realise that I've uh, swapped a life reading poetry for a life looking at spreadsheets. Um, so, you know, possibly. Um, but the reason why I, I work in assessment, and I think that assessment is so important, is because fundamentally it is a form of measurement. And if you look throughout history, not just at education, but in any field, in any, in any sector, uh, measurement is, is very often the, the prelude to improvements and innovations. So again, you know, just a few examples, but you could name many. Um, the ability to precisely measure time, uh, not just on land, but on a ship, 
has given rise to all kinds of innovations and developments which you would never have actually anticipated, arguably, to begin with. So uh, the modern GPS that sits on our phone, to a large extent, rests on the, the sort of pioneering uh, uh, improvements in, 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 in timekeeping technology that were made, uh, particularly in the, in, in the 18th century. Um, temperature. You, know, you look at the invention, the, the, the development of the thermometer, and the way that that, in the late 18th, early 19th century, had the power to revolutionise medicine. So I think measurement can get a bad name. Assessment can get a bad name. Because it can feel so dry, so desiccated, so removed from the immediate aims and the lofty goals. And I get that. And when you read a lot of the history of science about the people who made these big advances in measurement technology, there's one, I forget his name, but he was uh, helped with developing the temperature. And in order to get water with no air in, in a way that you could measure it reliably. He went around shaking a flask of water for four days, non-stop, to get all the air bubbles out of it. <laughs> and so those kind of things do seem bonkers. And I think in lots of ways, um, assessment, when you dig into it, can seem, as I say, very removed. But the reason why it's important is I think if we can do assessment better, and I think allied to that potentially accountability better, it will help us get education to be better. So that's why I think it's important. Um, but then a warning. And the warning, which I think Julian puts very well in this report, is that unlike a lot of other areas of measurement, um, educational measurement can only ever really be a proxy, or at least in the stages at now. You can never say never, can you? But it, it can only really be a proxy. It is an indirect measurement. Uh, learning is invisible. So when we ask pupils to take exams, when we ask them to do assessments, we're attempting to make something visible that we can then measure and say, have they, have they learned something? And there are all kinds of ways in which those proxies, those indirect measures, can be distorted. Um, so Julian talks about it in the book, but the, the sort of teaching to the test, the focus on the narrow sample. So an exam is only ever really a sample from a wider domain. We can never measure those huge soaring missions. We can take samples and measure those. Uh, and that's why teaching to the test is such a problem, because if you direct all your energy and attention on that sample, the link between the sample and the domain, those wider goals, is broken. And children perform well on the test and not in the wider goals that the test was supposed to represent. Now, to a certain extent, I think we can say we need to improve testing and improve assessment. And I think there are definitely things we can do there. And the, 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 the day job I do is about that. I think also, though, there's an extent to which we also have to acknowledge that you have to be aware of that tension. You have to be aware that it's an indirect measure. And so you have to, as Julian and Peter have said, keep your eyes on those wider goals at all times. Um, and Julian quotes in the report Daniel Koretz, who's professor of assessment at Harvard, and who's written very, very well on this, and I, I think you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, done the, the, the go-to research on it. And in, in his book, he, he says, as, as, as most assessment people will tell you, the final goal of education, the final goal of, of, of education is, is those wider goals. He talks about in his book uh, a man using algebra to work out the intercept uh, of, of two streets in New York to work out where his hotel is. And he says that's the kind of thing 10, 15 years after you leave education that is the point of education. Um, from my point of view, when I read that, I thought, you know, the thing that I would love my... my um, my, my, the children I taught, the students I taught, I, I taught a lot of them Thomas Hardy poetry. The thing that would be the greatest joy that, that I could have would be that 10, 15 years later, if someone close to them died, they turned to a Thomas Hardy poem for comfort. That, for me, would be a bigger sign of success than an exam grade. But the problem with that, as Corrits also goes on to say, is those are not standardizable, reliable measures. You can't wait 10 or 15 years uh, you, you know, these things are unreliable. You can't, you can't use those in the here and now. So we need something else. So we do need tests. We do need those assessments. Um, and as I say, I think we can make them better and we can do what we can to improve them. But we have to accept that they are indirect measures. So we can never lose the overall mission and the overall goal, that end goal uh, that, that we have there. So for me, I think this is a, a really valuable contribution. Um, to, 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 that, to, that, to that debate, to that discussion. I think we have to look for the better assessment, but we also have to keep our eyes on that, that final end goal and make sure that as much as possible our assessments are supporting that end goal and not distorting it. Thank you so much. Um, David, you and I have worked together on and off for, I was working it out the other day, 25 years now. Um, so on, on the basis of that, 
familiarity, I'm going to ask you not to go through all the things you agree with in this paper. I'll just take, <laughs> I will take it as a given that you think it's excellent. Um, why, don't you, why don't you zero in as fairly soon um, after starting on the things that... Cause my, my broad argument is that 25 years after the start of Ofsted and the, and the, and the, the erection of the accountability framework, um, we now need to loosen the, the, sort of the, the pressure on schools a, a bit to give them a bit more breathing room to, to define their own mission and you know, to, 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 to be guardians of their own standards. I'm not sure you're quite with me on that, and I'm quite keen for you to say bluntly and plainly why that is, if it is true. David. Great. I think it is, like the other panellists, I think it's an excellent report and it touches on a really seriously big issue and it comes up with some very good uh, policy conclusions, I think. And by the way, this is not just an issue in England or even in developing or developed countries. I was amused to be in Uganda over the last few days and to talk to the permanent secretary in their education department and to ask him what the big challenges were that were worrying him at the moment in Uganda. And this is a country where only a third of the uh, age cohort uh, of secondary age is actually in education at all. And the first thing he said to me was too many of our children being drilled for passing exams rather than actually learning. And they've just had a leak, believe it or not, of their official exam papers uh, because people have been trying to sort of find out what they are and tweet them out throughout sort of Uganda. So it's very interesting that, you know, this is not just a sort of England high accountability thing, but actually maybe not surprising because around the world, Governments have an aspiration to improve educational standards. Finance ministries in a time of austerity want to know if they're getting something for all their money that's going in. They don't want to put money in and get nothing out. And sometimes in education systems around the world, uh, they do put money in and not get very much out. And also policymakers see the accountability system as yet, yes, having created many problems, uh, but also as sometimes having perhaps achieved the things that they've wanted to do. Uh, in recent years in terms of improving the system. We don't have enough evidence to know why, but we do know in this country, for example, that over the last decade, the disadvantage gap between pupils entitled, for example, to the pupil premium and the rest has, contrary to a lot of media coverage, actually narrowed quite considerably in primary education by almost 25%. And as I said, who knows why, but what we do know is over that period of time, there have been very strong and different accountability incentives on the school system to focus on uh, the disadvantaged youngsters who have fallen behind. Uh, we also know, um, and I certainly learnt this during my time as schools minister, just how powerful our accountability system is in this country and how good it can be if you get the right accountability system and how bad it can be if you get it wrong. I won't forget us announcing uh, one week during the coalition period of government, the new Attainment 8 and Progress 8 uh, targets and everything and the accountability metrics, which I think are pretty good. Um, but I will also recall going back to my constituency four or five days later uh, to my advice centre to confront a parent who, between the time of our announcement on the Monday and me holding my advice centre on a Saturday, had got a letter from the local head teacher telling her the subjects that her child could no longer, according to him, and actually the letter was wrong, but could no longer take in the next school year because the government had brought in a new accountability metric. And she'd come to complain that there was some sort of vocational subject that we'd now made impossible, which happened not to be true. But the important point is that within days, the people in the school system were actually telling, were changing the decisions being made by uh, young people in a very real way. And I remember being very struck before the coalition government, meeting a bunch of Teach First graduates who were teaching in some of our schools. When I asked them what their biggest concern was, they said too many young people whose subject choices at Key Stage 4 were being determined by the school's desire to perform well in the accountability metrics and not necessarily by the long-term interests of their youngsters. So I think this report's great because it's got a whole series of policy proposals many of which are about improving the accountability system and creating the right incentives. And I do believe that it's possible to do a lot more to align good accountability with good educational practice. And I think there have been some very good things that have happened over recent years, uh, including uh, some of the changes that Michael Gove made post-2010. Um, I want, therefore, just very briefly uh, to 
highlight two or three of the things that I think are particular challenges for governments in terms of some of the uh, conclusions in today's report. One of them is a conclusion about Ofsted's role in looking at curriculum breadth and essentially adding a non-quantitative perspective uh, which helps to police what's going on in schools rather than simply looking at data uh, and looking at the same accountability metrics that the DfE could, can see. I actually think that this is a good direction of travel that's being proposed in the paper. And I think if you're going to have school inspectors going into individual schools, then being able to uh, look at things that the ordinary accountability metrics can't look at is entirely sensible. But what you can't do and where the Department for Education will be concerned, and was in my time in the department, when Michael Gove and Michael Wilshaw were discussing very similar proposals behind the scenes, and my fists are clashing because that was rather what, like what the meeting was like when they were discussing it, is that as soon as you send inspectors in to monitor something, even if it's more sort of judgmental, you have to have some guidance for those inspectors. There has to be some consistency between how school A and school B and school Z are measured. And that suddenly means that somebody somewhere has got to decide not just what the core curriculum is, but what all the other things are that schools should and shouldn't be doing. And until you can get an agreement between DfE and Ofsted about that, you can't set Ofsted loose on it because you can end up uh, with all sorts of inconsistencies. So I think there's a big opportunity there, but how and whether we can do it is a question. Secondly, and Julian, I mentioned this to Julian beforehand, and he told me that Daisy would probably tell me I'm wrong about it and correct me, which is quite likely. But as we move away from an exam system designed around ease of marking in order that uh, our sort of qualifications and accountability system can be served and can be as accurate as possible, uh, the, and as we ask, for example, children to show skills and imagination in a way that's not possible in a sort of multiple choice uh, question test, <laughs> and go back to some of the things that I can remember from my dim and distant past in education where you had things like S levels where you invited to write sort of much more open-ended uh, um, essays that probably didn't have the same detailed mark schemes as you've got today. Consistency of marking in a high accountability system and reliability becomes even more important. Even today's examination system, according to Ofqual, uh, has a high probability in some subject areas that the grade you'll be awarded uh, at GCSE level and beyond will be the wrong one. So how you uh, tease out more that um, uh, real imagination in young people rather than putting them through sort of drilled, easy-to-mark tests while also ensuring quality is really important. And the final thing that many of you will probably disagree with uh, but which I'm very nervous about as a former policymaker is this issue about how you really incentivize schools to aim for the sky and not just for being good. The truth is at the moment, according to Ofsted, the vast majority of schools are categorised as good. There's a very high stakes borderline between good and requires improvement and as a, perhaps as a consequence of that we've got a lot more schools uh, measured as good over recent years. I'm not too sure in reality whether data will support that. If you remove from a policymaker perspective an outstanding grade uh, without putting in place something else that is measurable, gives information to pupils and parents and others about what really outstanding success looks like, then from a policymaker's perspective, there is a nervousness that you not only cap aspirations, but also potentially undermine some of those things that the outstanding grade has been used to facilitate. For example, head teachers in high-performing schools being asked to work with low-performing schools in order to improve their standards. And that, I think, some of that sort of thinking is why I think policymakers will be far more nervous about changes of that type than uh, might be suggested from this report. Thank you, David. Um, so I'm just going to tease out a couple of the issues that have come up and then invite members of the audience to join the conversation in, in a moment. And we'll do that, I think, into the batches of three. But a couple of points. One is that um, the, whole, the whole question of measurement, it strikes me that those who worry, as I do, that measurement has a narrowing impact on education because you know teachers quite understandably focus on things that are being measured and deprioritize things that aren't um, the one set of responses to that is all about measuring more things 
The more we measure, the more they'll do. Um, even though the further away from academic attainment you get, the, the, the challenge of measuring the things you care about, whether it's character development or whatever it may be, gets harder and harder. The other is, let's measure less. And that's sort of a little bit what sits behind my call to get rid of the outstanding thing. I just, I, I, I don't quite understand what it's adding. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be the appropriate role for the state to go around describing in, in, in great detail what excellent looks like. Um, it creates a huge disincentive for schools who hold that label um, to try new things, to innovate, to experiment, because if it's working, don't change it, um, and to collaborate and support other schools around them. Um, and I always think, you know, the, the department has placed too many expectations on outstanding schools to, to be the engines of school improvement across the system when quite often they're not even in the right areas. They're, they're, they are geographically just too far away from the schools that need the most help. So there's a sort of an issue there about how do we incentivize a broader education, which isn't, or at least how do we tackle the problem of the narrowing that, that measurement has? And is the answer in more measurement or less measurement? I don't know if anyone has views on that. Um, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, let me start off. So I, I was trying not to speak next, but since these two are being reticent, uh, I very much agree with you that measuring an infinite number of things is not the answer. As a policymaker, you're constantly told by different lobby groups, please get Ofsted to measure this thing because it's terribly important, and unless they measure it, nobody will take it seriously. And the problem is you'd end up measuring literally everything, and then the tiny number of things you didn't think of would, not, would stop completely. Like, there wouldn't be any sport, there wouldn't be any of anything you didn't measure. So I think that's completely the, the wrong sort of approach. That's why I think that, that using Ofsted, when it's going into schools anyway, to look at some of those other things that are going on and comment on those, and pick up schools that are dropping things that are important because they're not in the conventional accountability metrics is an entirely sensible thing to do if you can agree an approach and if the DfE and Ofsted can agree a sensible approach and make it work on the ground. On the outstanding thing, what, what worries me is I am interested both as a policymaker and potentially as somebody interested in whether schools are doing brilliantly in knowing what the difference is between a good school that sits on the border of what requires improvement and good and a really fantastic one that I want to learn from, I want to be inspired by, I want to reward. And I can't think of, um, and maybe some of you can, ways of reliably um, being able to identify those schools without some kind of accountability or Ofsted metric. And you know, maybe you could say it would be driven by parents or whatever, but we know what would then happen <coughs> if it was something that was very important, which is parents who hated the head teacher would sort of feed in lots of negative thoughts. You know, the head teacher and the governing body would encourage everybody to write in, and you'd end up with some silly sort of gaming exercise. So from an ex-policymaker's perspective, that sort of thinking about, you know, I still care about being able to differentiate and reward really high quality is, I think, something that's going to block uh, measures <coughs> otherwise to strip away some of those indicators. But just on the Ofsted, as Julian was saying, it has so many perverse incentives to play it safe, to not innovate. It's so arbitrary what grade you get. You know, on a good day with one inspector, you might get one, and then you might, you might get another. So it then determines the future of that school. You, you might lose lots of staff because you've gone into a, a category when it wasn't actually deserved. So it's too, you know, would you want an independent inspector coming in and grading one to four every MP? You know, based on, um, you know, you're an outstanding MP, your requires improvement. That's based on people looking at your work at the moment on a snapshot with no notice on one day. They'd come into your office, look at what you're doing in your office on that one day and say, right, you're an outstanding or a require... You know, it's absurd. When you actually look at it, it is utterly um, stressful, absurd, arbitrary and unhelpful and it goes back to my initial point about simplicity versus a bit of complexity we treat people like idiots we treat parents like idiots when they're not idiots they're sophisticated I don't know a parent who doesn't actually look through an Ofsted report and what I would have is an Ofsted report the biggest crime of the Ofsted reports is that they're not developmental they don't actually give you an action plan because it's a tick box thing so to give you an example, we got an outstanding Ofsted after a couple of years of, of, of being open as a school. We as a school knew there were hundreds of things. We were at the foothills of most things. 
but it gave us one recommendation rather than many that would have helped us on the grounds that they could only give the recommendations according to their tick, tick box, whereas they should have given us an action plan. And if you had a proper Ofsted way of doing things, you'd come back in a few months and actually say, well, how have you... It's de pure developmental, so you'd actually put it into place. So the, for me, there is no benefit at all from grading a school and parents which is always what politicians hide behind think parents must have one thing okay that's outstanding i'll send them there it's not how parents think i want to come back on some of that i'll let Casey. do you want to come in first or? no i was going to say something else but okay yeah. <laughs> um i was going to talk about um so so more the assessment side of things and one of the, the questions david you were raising about the consistency of marking in a, in a high accountability system and how important it is. And I think one of the things we kind of maybe haven't, haven't realised is that the exam system has really grown over the last, particularly last 20, 25 years, in terms of the number of pupils doing exams. Um, I went to the Cambridge Assessment Archives a few years ago and they have all the old O-level exam papers in blue bound books on their shelves. And I took a few down and flicked through them. Uh, all the ones from the 1950s, there were questions about the Festival of Britain and uh, the Queen's tour of her Commonwealth realms. Um, there was actually a geography paper with that question in. Um, and I went to the archivist, I said, where's the mark schemes? She said, there is no mark scheme. I said, what do you mean there's no mark scheme? How can there not be a mark scheme? Um, and I think there's a, there's a big issue in terms of the teaching to the tests thing around the role of the mark scheme. And often these mark schemes have never been designed. They're not meant to be the curriculum. They're not meant to be the, you know, the mark scheme isn't meant to be the syllabus. They're sort of rough guides that are there to provide a bit of transparency and a bit of reliability. And I think the way they're used in schools has gone way beyond that. And you end up taking part in this sort of parsing exercise where you're teasing out exactly what words mean and what that means for the children. If they don't paragraph, does that mean they can't get any marks at all? Or if they slightly change the purpose, does that mean, you know, this kind of thing? And I think so much time and energy is spent on that um, that's not very helpful and that's inimical to all the kind of wider aims that we're talking about. Um, and it particularly, you know, it turns into that thing, there was a, I saw a history textbook recently, a GCSE exam textbook, where it was, there was, it was on Germany, I think 1919 to 1945, something like that, and there were more pages in it. So about, it felt like about a third of the textbook was given over to the four-mark question, the eight-mark question, the 16-mark question, you know, the various types of questions. And I think it didn't mention Bismarck at all. And you think, well, what's better for knowing about Germany 1919 to 1945? Is it better to have the ins and outs of the 16-mark question? Is it better to know something about Bismarck? You know. So what I think has happened, I think, the, 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 again, one of these unintended consequences, as a system scaled up, you have to have these mark schemes, you have to have this reliability, but that's caused these problems. And as I said, it's called, I think, a narrowing, definitely a narrowing of the curriculum. And a focus on some things which, in terms of my, my, my talk before about the sample and the domain, that the exam is only a sample, you're getting people focusing on really narrow parts of the sample that will never benefit children ever again in their life. You know, so you don't want them 15 years later going, ah, yeah, the 16-mark question. That's exactly what I need to solve this problem. Um, so is there a way, and it goes back to David's point, can we get the consistency of marking we need, or indeed even improve it, with, with, without... Uh, having this, this focus on the mark scheme. And I think part of that has to be uh, actually something that comes from, from teachers and from schools making an effort there. But I think there are also new technologies, new ways of marking. Of course, I work for an organisation who do comparative judgement, which is a way around some of these issues. But I think we have to really look at where, you know, where some of that narrowing of the teaching is coming from. And we have to recognise that the narrowing of the teaching in academic sense, it isn't just bad for those wider goals that aren't academic. It's actually bad for the academic goals too. And I think that's the thing we sometimes miss. We sometimes think, oh, exams, they do the academic thing, but if you focus on them, you neglect these other things. It's actually worse than that. It's not just that you're neglecting these other things. There are academic aims that you're compromising too. And I think in America, the early charter school movement really had this problem. And where you start to see it is they would have children who would leave their schools with great grades, and they'd go to university and drop out. And again, you know, very often the assumption for that was, oh, they didn't do enough on character. Now, perhaps they didn't do enough on character on some, some of those kind of issues. But I think it's just as much an issue that there may have been these problems with teaching to the test. Because where the teaching to the test comes unstuck is when you then start a new course that isn't a 16-mark question or four-mark question, but when you're starting a university degree where the university professor is assuming that because you've studied Germany in the 20th century, you know who Bismarck is. Um, and so those kind of things, that's where it starts to come unstuck. 
later down the line. So you get the grade, but it doesn't have the long-term meaning that it's supposed to have. So for me, like, that's the really interesting area, recognising that teaching for the test uh, and focusing on the exam is not actually even good for academics, and recognising the long-term problems that it causes, um, and, and thinking, what can we do? So to go back to your question, which you started with, with more assessment, less assessment, more accountability, less accountability, my thing would be, let's look at the assessment we've got at the minute and make it better. So maybe not more or less, but better assessment. You know, what have we got at the minute? How can we improve it? I'm keen to bring people in. Um, if you have questions, please um, raise your hand. A, a microphone will come to you, and if you could wait <coughs> for it to arrive before you speak, let us know who you are. Um, start with a, a lady right at that. You're, yep. Sorry, you're all quite difficult to see because I'm staring into oh, the light. Um, my name is Madeleine Holt. I've helped set up something called More Than a Score, which is an alliance of parents, groups and professionals, including mental health experts, to uh, look at the effects of the current standardisation, uh, particularly in primary, but we're also moving into secondary, and we, we are putting forward alternatives to the current system. Uh, we're particularly worried about the effect on mental health and well-being, which hasn't really been touched on. We've talked about disengaged kids, but my question is to the panel... Do the panel agree with the uh, current idea of this government to introduce testing of four-year-olds, a literacy and numeracy test on four-year-olds, which is due to be introduced? Do they agree with SATs in their current form? And do they agree that having a written uh, memory exam in exam conditions, high-stakes uh, exam, as we have in secondary school, is appropriate uh, to prepare children for the challenges of the 21st century? Thank you very much. Any other hands? Um, gentleman in the third row in the blue jumper. Yeah, if you could just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nigel Brotherton. I'm a RSA fellow, but also governor of um, one of the original transformational academies in an area of rural deprivation. It just occurs to me that maybe there are two things that are getting muddled up, um, and I wonder what the panel would think of this idea. That Ofsted should be basically a, an assessment of competence. It's there to make sure this is a, a school that is actually safe to exist and it actually is not doing harm to children, is positively moving, mo moving them forward. But um, that we need something else, which is more like a kind of self, a school improvement service, which we used to get once from our local authority, but it stopped now, which is where people come in and they come in with a critical eye, but also a positive eye. So they're saying, well, these are the things you're not doing so well, but actually you could do these better, or have you thought about something different? And if all schools had access to something more like that informal assessment, which could help them to look at the broader questions, while Ofsted is there is to make sure that they're actually, they should, they should be allowed to continue to exist, or whether there are major fundamental problems. Thank you. And I'll take a third one down the front, if I may, from the gentleman here. Thanks, thanks, Julian. Uh, Bill Lucas, um, uh, love the report, love the idea of a teacher-led renaissance. Bring it on. Uh, very RSA and enlightenment. Uh, astonishing ecosystem of agreement in here at the moment. I'm a bit worried about that. Wider mission, fantastic. Testing and measurement are important and lead to innovation, and we don't have to test everything we value or we'd go bonkers. Um, I, I really agree with all of that, and as the new co-chair of the PISA 2021 test of creative thinking, I'm still nervous about some of the unintended consequences of some of the things we're talking about here. I strongly agree that it could be a driver for innovation, as Daisy was uh, arguing. So my question is, uh, would any new test which was difficult to game help us to value the wider purpose of schools? And if so, what would it be? Good. Take any of those you like. Who wants to go first? I'll take that one. Great. Uh, if I can plug the company I work for. Um, so I think there are ways. So, you know, comparative judgment, which is what I, what I work on now. Um, I think comparative judgment can do some of those things. And I don't want to overdo it because, as I, I hope I made clear in my opening remarks, I think at the stage we are of technology at the minute, learning is invisible, any assessment is a proxy. So to an extent, you will, you know, you've got to be aware of your wider goals and you cannot lose sight of them. And in fact, when I worked at Art School as head of assessment, you know, we would begin all of our training sessions on assessment with what, you know, start with that wider goal. Even if it sounds ridiculous, what is it? And then we can work back from there and, and put out the, the jigsaw pieces. Um, but I think we can improve assessment. And I think the technique of comparative judgment, what it allows you to do is to provide reliable assessments for very open and creative tasks. 
And so there are tasks which in the past I would have thought, look, that's a lovely task, but you just can't get anything reliable from it. Therefore, actually, you can't get anything valid either, which now I think actually you can learn something from this. So I'll give you one example, uh, a maths question. What, uh, we asked this of 11-year-olds, what rules in maths do you know that are always true? Now, in the past, I thought that's a lovely activity for a classroom task, but it's not something really that we can get a reliable measure of because teachers will mark it in different ways. It's so hard to do. Uh, so what rules in maths do you know that are always true? And we do it with comparative judgment, which allows you to get a reliable mark for that kind of question. And a mark, in fact, which is reliability, which is in excess of some of the, um, some of the, some of the things you're getting for national exams often. Um, so I'll just give you an example of some of the responses we got to that question. And we say to people, you can write or draw whatever you want. They have a page. Uh, one response we got, what rules in math do you know that are always true? One was, uh, always read the question. Uh, <laughs> which is certainly true. <laughs> Another one we got is we had a child who copied out the sort of four or five times tables. You think, okay. And one child wrote n plus zero equals n, n multiplied by zero equals zero. And that's the kind of thing where you look at that and you think, aha, it's interesting. And that's something which traditional assessments aren't really testing or assessing. And I think the problem we've had in the past is when we've tried to introduce open, marks, open tasks like that, We've ended up, in order to standardise the marking of them, we've accompanied them with mark schemes which essentially hyper-specify the response and lead to the very worst kind of teaching to the test. And I think there's still some of that in our system at the minute. So I think what comparative judgment allows you to do is to have a rubric-free but reliable measure of assessing open tasks. And then if you don't get the reliability, you have to go back to your question and say, what was wrong with the question? <laughs> Maybe it's not assessing something that, that, that's there. Um, so I think there is a role for better assessment and there is a role for the more kind of open tasks. And I think that's an area where technology can help you. Thanks. Peter, do you want to pick up on... Um, I think it's Nigel, isn't it? Um, I totally agree with that. I think we should divide out, and I know there's a, quite a clamour for this, the compliance issues, which should in a way be no notice. If you're trying to see on an average day as a school doing keeping children safe and, and doing the right thing, I think that's fine. There's no argument at all for no notice on the other stuff, because it should be working with the school on their strategy, on their development, with a, coming in with a, a critical eye to say, well, actually, what are you working on? Being, it will encourage far more openness from the school about what they're, what, what they're doing at the moment. I'm going, I, I'm doing, just to give you one example of how it can work, actually it's today, and I've sneaked out for this, we've got four head teachers coming around the school who are um, sort of critical friends, but highly sort of uh, rigorous, who are peer reviewing the school. And we've given them a self-review document that we would never give to Ofsted because it's completely warts and all. And they are going to give us completely warts and all feedback back, which you know we will then have an action plan on. Now, that, I think, will be infinitely more supportive and rigorous. They've also agreed to come back in a few months' time. So I feel that will actually develop people. And the spirit in which it's being conducted is also means that the staff will open up to them uh, and be more open with them. So I think, I think the two are completely separate and should be treated as separate. Um, so I did very quick, um, I think, going back to the previous discussion, what Madeline was saying, I think less is actually important. It's not just better. I think doing fewer, you know, the Progress 8, where it is an improvement on some of the things that went before, but there are still quite a lot of flaws. And one of them is the eight, eight GCSEs. The point is, in secondary now, there is a tiny amount of non-assessed curriculum. There used to be a greater balance. There is, basically, there's no secondary curriculum. There's a series of exam syllabuses that most schools are working for to, often from year seven onwards. And once you've done eight, and once because of the accountability, you're doubling up on English and maths, which are double-weighted, so you're giving extra <coughs> lessons than you might not, which is important to get literacy and numeracy right, there's very, very little time for anything else. If, you were account if the accountability was on three or five, no employer, incidentally, asks for any more than that. So there's no, you can't hide behind that. Then you would actually have more room to do more expansive things um, with the rest of the curriculum. I mean, just one thought on this. I'm, I'm struck by how one moment we're constantly talking very lofty ideals, um, and then next minute we're talking about comparative judgment and, and the, the technical aspect. But what's so fascinating is how the two are linked. You know, and, and, and again and again, if we want to be able to capture and measure um, 
ingenuity and originality and creativity, we need to find ways of doing that. And that's what's so interesting about what Daisy's doing with comparative judgment, is it, although it sounds very, very technical, that is in fact its purpose. David, do you want to come in on anything or should we take one, we've got time for one more round if we're, very if you're short, yeah. Um, uh, hasn't been commented yeah. on. I mean, the, the the third question, Daisy answered very well, and I agree with her. Although, and I might have misunderstood the question. I think there are some er some aspects of education that matter hugely, that are that are important to employers, but it is very difficult how how you can whether you can actually turn it into a subject that can be measured, uh, a certificate be awarded for, and get labour market value in currency. I agree with the point about Ofsted, and I would also be very careful about getting it too much into school improvement, because I think you're then measuring the result of your own work. We've got into that a bit with the sort of RI good thing. On the baseline, um, what I am absolutely convinced about is that measuring progress and holding schools to account on progress rather than just crude attainment, which measures your intake, is a really important thing. And measuring early on uh, is a good thing, and it's more likely to create investment in the early years and identification of problems. And I think, therefore, the principle of the baseline test is absolutely, or assessment, I think we're supposed to call it, is a good thing. Obviously, the real challenge is how can you make that sort of thing work in a high accountability system? Because, you know, the incentives to gain that are absolutely massive. And that was a problem when we thought up the idea uh, and it remains quite a big challenge, I think, for policymakers now. Thanks, David. We, we've got time for two questions or comments, if they're very, very brief. Gentleman in the blue jacket. Uh, thank you. Um, we've got an incredible skills shortage in this country. I hate to mention this because, it, frankly, it's been very, a slightly elite you know, direction, understandably so. I mean, we, we learn how great poetry is in school, but having just returned from uh, Berlin, I've visited you know, apprenticeship schools where you have workshops for bricklaying, carpentry, you know, vehicle mechanics. Here, we don't seem to have any of that sort, and that's for students from the age of 12. They can, they can learn academic subjects alongside a skill. So it's just really that issue of where do we go to get our skilled people when they all go back to Poland and Romania and Lithuania. Thank you. And the lady, that's it, in the same row. My question is building on that skills um, agenda. I think I work with a lot of employers and advise on talent, and one of the issues is that they don't think schools are they're producing academic students but they're not work ready so I think the softer skills the kind of communication skills and all the non-academic stuff there needs to be some focus around that because we talk to employers they say we can invest on teaching technical but if they haven't got good human communication skills and able to work in teams that's going to be really difficult especially if we want to compete more internationally uh, with overseas um, people you know people who have been educated in a different way Okay, the, the, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, hold it there and come back to the panel. So technical skills and also soft skills or sort of employability skills and education as preparation for work. Who's got a, a take I mean, on it? I don't think education is entirely a preparation for work. I think it's about also loving learning when you're doing it, but I think there's an ele element of that. I go back to this rebalancing. We talk about head, heart and hand. I think you've got to really focus on that combination of things that you are giving them a rich academic uh, education but you're also um, giving them the chance to work uh, on problems to solve get client briefs we do a lot on design thinking um, get, get you know hands-on experience in, in different forms so you've got that breadth and I think also there's lots of barriers being bl blurred and taken down now between purely an academic route you know there's a lot of entrepreneurial jobs that people will go be going into that involves doing and making as well as thinking and the sort of silos you've you've either got one route or the other i think uh, is pretty old-fashioned so i think there's an absolute necessity for all types of students even the most seen as most academic to, to go down this route 
I think there's a lot more we can do to improve our system in this area through accountability, through structures, through funding. I'd be very reticent to uh, encourage this route too early for young people, and I'd be very watchful that it didn't become a way of streaming off younger people from poorer backgrounds into a different sort of expectation set. But I think it's possible to avoid that risk while actually improving the way in which we fund and signpost um, more vocational education. Um, I'm going to call time on that, actually, because I'm, it's, it's 2 o'clock and I'm getting that, that look from the back of the room. Um, what I forgot to do at the beginning, and I should have done, um, was a very, very quick um, Oscars thank you thing bit, because there were a lot of people that helped me along the way in preparing this report. The good thing about learning new stuff, which I, I am, because I don't have an education background, I have a policy background, um, is that there's a lot of people in this area who are very good at teaching, <laughs> and I've benefited hugely from their help, and particularly to, to Martin Robinson and Bill Lucas and Sam Friedman, who are sitting at the front, who commented on early drafts, um, to Anthony Painter, Matthew Taylor and others, my colleagues at, at the RSA. And then finally, if I can just thank all of you for coming, but particularly thank our panellists as well for their contributions, um, to Peter, Daisy and David. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.